0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 129 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, that is Gavin, and that is Fia. And friends, have you ever had a one-day work week? No. Um, I feel like probably
1: once, yeah.
2: That sounds awesome.
1: Fia? No,
2: so definitely not.
0: <laughs> is, it, is it just because of snow? No. Huh. So, uh, uh, in New York State... Most people take their regents exams um, Uh, uh, in June, but if you fail it, you get to take it again in August. Right. And If you fail that, you can take it in January. Right. So we've got uh, four days coming up with no school. Interesting. Uh, We still have to show up. Right. But kids aren't showing up. No teaching is being done. So uh, it was kind of like you teach on Monday, and that's about it. Nice. It's a nice little break for high school teachers. The other schools don't get this break.
1: Yeah, cool. And for anybody who's not in uh, in New York State, uh, Regents are what you know we call our like state exams uh, at the end of the year, or sometimes in the middle of the year. Um, right. Yeah, like I I should know what they're called in Pennsylvania now. As far as I know, actually there aren't there aren't many like large standardized tests in Pennsylvania. From what I've gathered from talking to uh, a lot of the students from Hobie which is the the organization Mike Fia and I, you know, volunteer at and, and met at. Uh, they're, you know, 15, 16-year-old. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I remember asking them what they do for state tests, and they were like, yeah, we kind of don't really have any. And that blew my mind as a New Yorker. Because between, like, ninth grade and finishing high school, we take, like, what, 15? Depending on, like, you know, what classes you take. Yep. Yeah. You do two for social studies. You need one for like, English, four for science. If you
0: take all the science classes, uh, right. But you don't need to take all of them, right? One or two for math, uh, maybe two up, or three up math. to three for math. Right. So, like, you're looking at closer to ten. You know, ten probably. Uh, I know there's a French one and a Spanish one. I don't know about many other languages. There used to be. There is not anymore. Oh,
1: you're, when did that change? Anyway, this is After the riveting graduated. content you come to us for. Uh, yep. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we're here. Welcome, everybody, to, uh, to this wonderful episode. Today, uh, what we're going to be talking about, if you remember the beginning of last episode, I, I challenged myself to find a historical figure in uh, geology or paleontology that wasn't super racist because we've done, I think, episodes about th- three other people. And I don't remember about the first guy, but at least the last two were super racist. Um, and so I challenged myself to not do that again, because uh, it just made me sad when I was working on the script. Um, so I found one. Uh, and we'll we'll talk more about uh, James Hutton and, and his life and time as once we get into the main meat of the episode. But first, Fia, do you have some housekeeping for us?
2: You know, I do. Don't forget to rate the show on whatever platform you listen to us on and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube and give us feedback about the show and any future topics you would like to hear on the podcast. And if you want to be a guest, which we would be very thrilled to have you, please uh, fill out the guest form and all that can be found in the show notes. And uh, what is going to be next episode's topic?
1: Yeah. Next episode is an episode that ends in zero so that means it's going to be a Mike takes the wheel episode, and uh, Mike, would you happen to know what the topic is going to? No,
0: nope, not at all.
1: Yeah, true to form. True to form. Yep. Nice. I was, we'll get there. Don't worry. I yes. was hoping after uh, last week's, you know, inspiring today in history, uh, you know, something connected to that might might inspire you. But I guess we'll see uh, what to you know this possible. episodes today
0: in history brings. So, what do you got for us? So I'm not sure we're ever gonna beat uh, January 10th in history, um, but we got uh, we got a solid we got a solid trio here. All right. Of uh, of things. So uh, most recently in 1984, uh, yeah, 1984, the Apple Macintosh computer uh, first went on sale. Um hmm. I don't have much else to say on that, but you know it's a thing that happened. That's cool. Yeah. Before that. In 1835, we have the first canned beer to go on sale. Wow. First canned We're about, uh, beer. First canned beer. Kruger's finest beer in 1935. Huh. Uh, so, you know, Prohibition just recently ended. I, I'm a fan of canned beer. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that happened. And then finally, going all the way back to 1848, uh, James Marshall started the California Gold Rush mm. January 24th, 1848. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. So in Gavin, you lived in California for a while. So, I sure did. Didn't yeah. find any gold though. <laughs> okay. Well, you know raise you know raise a canned beer um, as we are talking <laughs> through. I presume an Apple Macintosh computer for uh, for James Marshall and the California Gold Rush. I, I bet Cheers. there was January. some some beers involved in the creation of the Macintosh, and also computers involve a lot of gold in them. A lot of the wiring is gold. So there we yeah. go. fun fun fact. Cool fun indeed yeah so that's a uh, uh, January 24th in history uh Fia, do we have a um, oh, it's not swamp corner more I always forget what it is uh with the new one
2: I'm gonna make you struggle a little longer
0: really believe <laughs> me out here?
2: <laughs> seagrass corner
0: seagrass corner see in my head seagrass and swamp kind of go together but
2: they are not
0: no very very different environments yes all right all right all right we pile out enough.
2: Alright, anyway, welcome to Seagrass Corner. Today I want to talk to you about the hawksbill sea turtle, or Retmochiles imbricata, which Gavin had to help me pronounce that before we started. Um, It is one of the seven total species of sea turtle in the world, fun fact. Uh, and they are unfortunately on the endangered species list. Uh, These hawksbill sea turtle get their name from having a unique beak-like mouth which resembles that of a hawk and is really cool for uh, finding uh, food and sources uh, food sources in hard to reach cracks and crevices and uh, fun fact they are one of the only species of turtles that can survive on a diet consisting mainly of sponges, which is fun. Huh. Yeah. Um these babies can in adult be about two to three and a half feet, uh, get to hundred or hundred fifty pounds. Uh no one really knows their lifespan, but probably about fifty years. Um they're found pretty much throughout the world, just in like the um equatorish region. Sure, yeah. Um, and uh, they're threatened by a lot of things like bycatch and fishing gear, so when they do trawls they get caught in there, uh, climate change, uh, harvest of the turtles and eggs, and then loss of nesting areas because people love their beaches and that's where they lay their eggs, pollution and predation, and vessel strikes, so boats hitting them. But they're really cool and uh you should look one up
1: yeah eating uh eating sponges is a unique one there's there's not a lot to eat in sponges to begin with and uh in a lot of sponges most of what there is to eat is literal glass uh, <laughs> so uh, glass and or like uh calcium carbonate basically rocks uh, <laughs> that's, that's I would imagine you
2: know, uh there's probably a lot of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Other organisms that are living in the sponges that they are also yeah. consuming. Like worms, shrimp sometimes.
1: Gotcha. That and makes things. sense. Not,
2: not that I, I would say that is like the main reason, but I would assume they would get some benefit from that too.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, awesome. Thank you for that, Fia. And now on to the, the entree of the episode. Talk about... A man called James Hutton, who is one of many people that you'll often hear called the father of modern geology. Um, So we've talked previously in episode 67 about Nicholas Steno. Uh, He is sort of the father of geology writ large and was around, you know, close to 100 years before Hutton. Uh, but Hutton is often called the father of modern geology because he sort of put a lot of things together that Steno sort of laid out the groundwork for. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, from what I could find, this is a big big caveat there, there's no evidence of racism uh, in this guy. Um, and I said here in my notes, that's probably because he mostly stuck to geology, no real paleontology. And sort of the evolution side of things is where... Old timey scientists, you know, fill in the racism stuff. Talking about, you know, evolution, especially like human evolution, is when the racism really creeps in, uh, in the early days of uh, learning about, you know, our our own species and where we came from. Uh, and even today, uh, there's still, you know, like scientific racism is is a, still a real thing, and that's around today. But this guy seems to be relatively clean on that front. Um, Hutton, just to sort of start us off, some of the things that he's famous for, and then we'll get about uh, get talking about some of his life and who he was, and then sort of further explain some of the stuff that he did uh, and why it was important. So first, he is most famous for being an early and main proponent of the idea that all the rocks today tell us about Earth in the past. Today, that kind of seems a little obvious because we have the benefit of almost 300 years of knowledge on hutton um but at his time you know that wasn't a given you know how rocks formed was still being actively debated and there was a lot of like philosophy going on about it um but he was one of the first people to be like "Mm, we actually learn about like the long long time ago like the, the deep time from looking at rocks uh He was also, on that note, a major proponent that the Earth couldn't be as young as the church claimed, mostly because of he spent a lot of time watching landscapes and observing how they changed over years and decades. And he was like, for some of the features that we see in the world, that can't have happened in just a couple thousand years. You know, things like, for example, the Grand Canyon could not have happened in that short of a time. Um, I never saw that he visited the U.S., but you get the idea.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, He was a main voice of what would come to be called later uh, uniformitarianism, which is the idea that the same physical properties that we see in the world today, like erosion, weathering, rock formation, etc., all happen at more or less the same rate in the past. Basically, that the laws of physics have always been the same, so we can learn about what geology was doing in the past by looking at what geology is doing today.
0: Cool. Isn't that also a huge part of, um, um, like astro- astronomy, astronomy Yes, astrology, yes, um, absolutely. Astronomy, just like the idea of what is true today would have been true billions of years ago. Um, and therefore we can kind of hit rewind and, you know, try to learn about the past that way.
1: Yeah absolutely there there's a bit of a caveat on that in like the immediate aftermath of the big bang there was some weird right things going on but like you know as long as you're you know not immediately post big bang yeah the laws of physics mostly apply the same as they as they do today um but you know this was not terribly long uh after galileo so like and you know it's vaguely contemporaneous with like isaac newton so uh, that's the sort of time we're talking about here. Um, that some of these, you know, different thoughts about lo- the laws of physics and stuff, as we understand them today, we're not even on the radar at the t- at this time. Uh, and as per usual, with you know r- wealthy European guys from this time, uh, they had lots of time to dabble. In other fields as well. So while he contributed mainly to geology, he also contributed quite a bit to many other fields. And we'll talk about that toward the end of the episode. But that's that's the biggest thing is that observing the present is the key to understanding the past. That's Hutton's sort of claim to fame. Cool. So with that, who who exactly was this guy? So, James Hutton was born in 1726 in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, where his dad was the city treasurer. So, you know, a, a pretty notable guy handed a lot of the finances for the city um, in one of the you know major cities in Scotland. Uh, unfortunately, his dad died when he was only three, and I didn't really find all that much about what his life was like for the next few years after that. Um, his mom was relatively well-educated for a woman. At the time. Um, and she taught James and his his few siblings. Uh, from their, their home. Um, and as we'll see. I understand nothing. About the education system at this time. I was going <laughs> to say that out front. Because some of the things that this guy did. seem like completely wild. Uh, <laughs> just like the the timeline. Of like when things happened. Because like there was nothing that I read. That was like oh this guy was like a super genius. But uh As we'll see, he does very impressive things in very short amounts of time. And I don't know how usual or unusual that was for the time. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, so when he was 10, he started attending high school, uh, being, you know, pretty talented, supposedly, in math and chemistry. And then at age 14, he started at the University of Edinburgh uh, studying classics. So that would be things like, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Rome... You know, Mediterranean stuff from, you know, uh, the way, way back times. And so, like I said,
0: 14, I don't know how unusual that was.
1: Uh. <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say it was like super unusual and he's just awesome. Yeah. <sighs> uh, apparently, he didn't love studying the classics because then at
1: age 17, he became a lawyer's apprentice. Sure. <sighs> and then in my notes here, it just says, man the freedom that these people had back in the day to just bounce from one lane to another is just astonishing.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Because
1: after that, he didn't really like that. He only did that for about a year, and then he became a doctor's assistant. Hmm. Uh, And that he seemed to like quite a bit because he stayed uh, and did that for a couple of years while also taking various science classes at uh, the University of Edinburgh. Uh, Sometime around 1747, so he's about 21 years old at this point, uh, he had a son out of wedlock that he gave money to throughout his life, but never really was involved in his life in a re- you know meaningful way. Um, but that is like just looking through everything. That is literally the only mention of him having a family or uh, anything. Is that he had one son uh, that he just paid child support to, and then just kind of left him and the mom alone.
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: That same year, 1747, he decided that he wanted to become a doctor for himself, no longer just be the assistant, Uh, but Edinburgh didn't offer degrees in medicine, so he attended the University of Paris, and he stayed there for a couple of years, and then moved to the University of Leiden in the Netherlands in August of 1749. Literally 20 days later, he defended a couple of theses from his doctorate manuscript. A couple? Yes. Yes. Uh, supposedly, and again, I have no idea what academia was like at this time, uh, because it said supposedly his manuscript had 92 theses in it.
2: Hmm.
1: What exactly that means?
2: Like, 92 really papers? Know.
1: Well, even that would just be astonishing, because he'd only been in Paris for like right. two years. Yeah.
2: Um...
1: But I did see, out of the 92, he, like, publicly defended two of them. uh, And then, got nine days after that, was given his doctorate in medicine. So he he was in Paris for two years, then the Netherlands for a month. Mm -hmm. Where he defended two theses and got his degree. Presumably, it was on stuff he did in Paris. uh, But... I understand nothing about how this system of academia worked back in this yeah. time. Uh, but yeah, so he was now a, a medical doctor. And so he moved to London for a little bit uh, and then back to Edinburgh in 1750. Uh, there, instead of going right to work as a doctor, he still enjoyed chemistry throughout his entire life. He, he really loved chemistry. Um, one of his friends Uh, Named James Davies, they worked on chemistry together, and they started a business creating useful chemicals from all the really nasty soot that uh, Edinburgh had from burning lots and lots of coal. Hmm. This is still the mid seventeen hundreds. They burned coal for everything, Um, Mm -hmm. and so all of this soot, you know, was just everywhere. Uh, And the chemical specifically that they uh, manufactured was called ammonium chloride. Basically, it's it's a salt that's used in various dyes, uh, it's used in smelling salt, and used in various ways in like uh, metallurgy and, and foundries, basically making steel. Um, but up to this point, it could only be sourced from nature, and nowhere in like the British Isles or like continental Europe, most of it came from Egypt and other parts of northern Africa. So they had to import it all that way. But Hutton and Davies were just like, hey, we can take this gross soot that's literally everywhere and turn it into this super useful, you know, uh, chemical. And they made a boatload of money.
2: Yeah. That sounds about right.
1: Yeah. Uh, And so with all this money, he uh, bought a bunch of properties in Edinburgh and rented them out to continue having money. Um, And this, in my notes also, this was before I, I read about the sun thing. Um, but in my notes here it says the worst thing i was able to find about the guy was that he was a landlord.
0: <laughs>
1: uh-huh. um, landlord. Yeah. I didn't see anything about how well he kept his buildings. Uh maybe yeah. <laughs> he collected all the soot from his buildings so his buildings were somewhat soot free. I don't know. Um but yeah. So he did that worked, you know, running that business for uh, a few years and then in the uh Early, it's so like 1752, 1753. Uh, he moved back to his family farm, which is sort of on the coast outside of Edinburgh, uh, and began running experiments on how to best, uh, how best to farm and raise animals and plants uh, using techniques that he had learned from his travels and doing lots of reading and stuff. He's like 26 at this point. Uh, and he's already made, b- effectively, like a millionaire. And he just moved out to the farm and was just using these, you know, the the company and also the the rental properties to just pay for his farm life. Uh which I think is pretty awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh mm-hmm.
1: and, and it was at the farm here where he actually started to become interested in interested in geology. He you know, geology was not really a field. Uh unlike medicine, which has been, you know, a, a field as long as people have been around to get hurt effectively. Um Yeah so by, by working on the farm, uh, which I said was like sort of out on the coast, he observed a lot of different natural processes, uh, like coastal erosion and sedimentation. Uh, and he was a very skilled, just natural observer. Everything he saw, he would take very detailed notes about and try to figure out why whatever observa- thing he was observing, why it was behaving in the way it was. Um, as he worked the farm, he you know, came to realize that many of the rocks that he found were made up of smaller bits of other rocks, which must have been destroyed in the past to create this current rock that he's looking at. And uh, also in his, you know, couple of decades of uh, farmsteading, he would often go on geologic tours of the countryside with other naturalists and make observations about what he saw. So he was a very well-traveled person of, uh, of Scotland. And he did this for about 20 years, just vibing out on the farm, uh, kicking around the Scottish countryside, (laughs) looking for cool rocks while never having to worry about money. Uh, And I have in my notes here also hashtag life goals. Uh, (laughs) I I, I wish I could be so lucky. (laughs) Uh, During this time, he also kept doing chemistry and created several industrially useful dyes from uh, various plants and things that he was growing on his farm. Uh, So he was still contributing to chemistry and, and, you know, industry in that way, too, on top of all the the geology and also doing, like I said, some experiments and just like learning how to raise animals properly Uh, in 1768. So now Hutton is about 42. uh, He decided to move back into the city of Edinburgh. Uh, He still wanted to keep doing running his experiments on all his animals and plants. Uh, So he basically paid people to, like, keep up the farm and they could live there. Uh, it's, you know, they just had to keep his experiments going. Uh, So just paying people to do his science for him, which is, you know, how how it works these days, pretty much. Uh, uh And though he didn't really have a job at University of Edinburgh, he kind of hung out in all the academic circles with like the faculty there. And uh, later on in the years, he went on to found... Uh, a couple of new local academic societies, uh, mainly the Royal Society of Edinburgh, uh, particularly around this time, uh, Royal Society of blank city was just sort of a, a club for academics, particularly in um, like the, the Britain and, and the UK. I don't remember which part makes it Britain and which part makes it just the or the UK and which part <laughs> makes it just Britain. I don't remember, um, but so th- it's, it's Northern Ireland. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Thank
2: Wales you. Wales is
1: included in Britain.
0: Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, Great Britain. I always get which is which confused, but I believe Great Britain is just the island itself. Ah, okay. Um, and the United Kingdom includes Northern Ireland, but right. notably not Ireland, Ireland. Yes. Very notably, not the
1: Republic yes. of Ireland. Uh, like super notably. <laughs> Uh, According to Star Trek, uh, Irish reunification happens in the year 2024. So we'll see. Anywho. um, Yeah, so all these different cities in uh, the UK basically had their own Royal Society of Edinburgh, Royal Society of London. And that's where all the academics got together and would give presentations to each other about their research. Um, And so he basically helped found the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Uh, Of note was his, uh, we'll say, friendship uh, with fellow doctor and chemist Joseph Black. More on him a little later. Um, He was also um, somebody who was like an academic in the area of uh, Edinburgh. I don't think he was ever like on the faculty or whatever of the university, but in the same circles and also helped uh, Hutton found some of these other societies and clubs and stuff. Uh, In the late 1760s and early 1770s, he was a major contributor and shareholder. So he's just all about making that money uh, of the canal system that was sort of built through the city. Uh, And this is, he put his knowledge to all the local geology to use to make sure they didn't mess it up. Uh, and also, like I said, because he was a shareholder, he made quite a bit of money. Potentially uh, a pretty bad conflict of interest because he was also effectively on the city's version of like a zoning committee or a public works committee. So he was like the one making decisions, but also profiting off the decisions. Yeah, it's a 1700s, who cares? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
1: And then later on in his life, uh, in the 1790s, he uh, suffered very painfully from bladder stones. uh, And eventually, in 1797, he died from complications of trying to have them removed surgically. Oh, no. that's a shame. Yeah. Uh, His friend, Joseph Black, uh, died in 1799, so two years later, uh, and was buried near Hutton. I put emphasis on friend because the first thing I saw when I read a lot of the stuff about them being very close friends, neither of them were ever married. Neither of them really had a family. I was like, mm, my headcanon is that they might have been gay there's, there's, for legal reasons. There's no evidence for that at all. Uh, yeah. But my my fun headcanon, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah. Um, mystery. It will, it will remain a mystery. Uh, it will remain a mystery. Um, so overall for, you know, an 18th century wealthy socialite, he lived a relatively unproblematic life. So that's, that's the man. So let's, let's talk about a little more what he did. So some of his main contributions, um, is that, like I said, the, the father of modern geology, but like, like all science, you know, But was by no means The first person to try and explain how rocks form. There's always, you know, people have been doing that for millennia. Aristotle, I'm sure, had thoughts about where rocks come from. Um, But he was one of the first to get pretty darn close to how we understand it today. Um, His two main publications were, and I quote, this whole thing right here is the title. Theory of the Earth. Or, An Investigation of the Laws Observable in the com- Composition, Dissolution, and Restoration of the Land Upon the Globe.
2: Hmm. That was title
1: number one. Really title long two. title. Very. Uh, title number two, Concerning the Systems of Earth, Its Duration and Stability. Um, long story short for those, both were published in uh, different presentations to the Royal Society of Edinburgh, uh, both in 1785. And so these works, you know, collectively basically say rocks that make up the land today were in general formed in the oceans, mostly from the types of materials that we currently see near the coast today. Cobbles, sands, things you find on beaches. Mm -hmm. The rocks that make up the land are not a monolith. They are not all the same and are widely varied Uh, And formed in a variety of ways. Uh, Before what currently is land was land, there was other land that eroded into the oceans, became rocks by the same forces that are observable today, and was uplifted to form today's land. He's Mm -hmm. sort of the first person to put it in a cycle like that. In, in an indefinitely repeating cycle. Uh, also following on from that sort of cycle, uh, the old land had plants and animals just like our modern land does. So he threw in a quick explainer for fossils, which I appreciated. And lastly, our modern land masses were formed by natural processes that you can go see happening today. And as a listener to this type of podcast in particular in the year 2024. Yeah, all that seems relatively obvious. But again, almost 250 years ago, these were observations that people really hadn't put together before. Okay. Uh, The main thing you'll hear, depending on what kind of teacher, I'm sure Mike being a history teacher is, uh, you know, cares more about this than most people. But my teachers in my, like, intro to geology classes were very big on, like, learning the names of the people who did the work. Um, And
0: so... It depends on the work. Well, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, But this was, like, lecture one or two. We talked about Hutton. Um, Mainly because, like I mentioned, he was more or less the person that popularized the first version of the rock cycle which is like the rock cycle is like first class of like an intro geology course is the rock cycle. Um, he didn't get it quite right. He was still missing a couple pretty important things, but um, this is sort of what he proposed as how rocks formed and what the cycle sort of was. So first rocks on land erode into the ocean. They sink to the bottom to form layers. They get heated up. By the Earth's internal heat, which was not widely accepted at the time, that the Earth had a warm inner core. Um, These rocks, because of that heat, compacted and fused together uh, to form actual rocks. And then being uplifted to the surface, then being eroded again back into the ocean, so on and so forth. And, yeah, he's missing a couple important steps. He doesn't really talk about metamorphism or, like, igneous rocks at all. Uh, But if I was explaining the rock cycle to, like, a second grader, that's almost exactly what I would say.
2: And he just got that, like, during his time? That's great.
1: Yeah. Just like I said, he would just sit out and watch stuff happen on the ocean. And the uh, thing about, like, the Earth's being warm in the middle, that was just sort of, like, him reasoning out, okay, what could cause these particles of sand I find on the beach to then become sandstone. He was like, well, some pressure and some heat, you know, you need something to sort of push all the pieces together so they don't just fall back apart. Um, That was him just sort of logicking it out. Um, So he, that's the heat isn't as big of a thing for sedimentary rocks. So that was a a little bit of a miss, but he was inadvertently right uh, in the end. Uh, another thing that he didn't, um, he wasn't the first one to talk about this, but, uh, again, just more notable people talking about this, coming to the same conclusions is how science works, uh, particularly when they come to the same conclusions independently. But, um, he once visited in his travels all across Scotland doing these tours of all these farms, um, where he saw some granite cutting through some other metamorphic rocks. Um, He correctly interpreted the granite as having been molten when this happened. Uh, Others at this time thought that granite, you know, the same granite that makes up countertops and stuff and makes up um, most of, like, the continental basement rock. So, like, (laughs) underneath all the layers of sedimentary rocks on the continents, there is these massive called plutons of granite that is an igneous rock. Uh, And so he was the first one to sort of popularized that granite is an igneous rock was molten when you know it formed um others at the time thought that granite was formed by minerals precipitating out of water like hydrothermally which is very common in quartz by itself but that's not how granite is formed Mm -hmm. um more importantly though he concluded that the metamorphic rocks must have been there first if the granite Cut through the metamorphic rocks. Those metamorphic rocks must have been there first for the granite to cut through. Again, rather simple logic. Uh, but, you know, Nicholas Steno, again, episode 67, we had a whole episode about him, uh, was sort of the one who established this about 100 years prior. But Steno's contributions weren't really fully recognized in his time. And it, it would surprise me a lot if Hutton had ever even heard of Steno. Um, but, uh, many different, you know, well-regarded voices coming to the same conclusion separately is how scientific theories form. And that idea, uh, called the principle of cross-cutting relationships is, again, that's like maybe lecture two of intro geology. mm
0: mm-hmm.
1: Um, he was also a, an early detractor of what was called the Neptunist movement. Neptunism sort of was the popular idea at the time, which said that rocks were all deposited in a major catastrophic global flood, not necessarily like the biblical flood, but a global mm-hmm. flood nonetheless. And that's where they thought rocks had come from. Uh, that was their explanation for why there is rock rocks that seem to be from the ocean up on land. Is that it was all was underwater at some point? Which they were right. They just kind of got the order wrong. Um, and so Hutton was sort of the main supporter of what is called the Plutonic movement. Basically, it was his ideas of erosion, then solidification, and then uplift. That whole movement was basically all of his ideas. Um, and along with this, he was also part of that growing consensus that I mentioned before that earth is much older than what the Bible says it should be. Uh, according to all the scholars at this time, um, all these processes that he you know, laid out took place over much longer timescales than hundreds or thousands of years. Um, it wouldn't really be another century until science sort of developed the tools for trying to put like an empirical measurable date or, or, or number uh, to that amount of deep time. But his observations were the basis for establishing deep time as a concept at all. Hmm. Uh, his ideas, kind of like, like many scientists in their day, uh, particularly in the you 1600s know, and 1700s, their ideas weren't all that widely accepted at first. Um, you know, it's not like he was... If he was presenting some of these things in London, he probably would have... Been taken a lot more seriously, and his ideas spread a lot faster. Uh, but Edinburgh, England, just k- likes to kick Scotland anytime it can. Uh, <laughs> um, so because he was doing it in Scotland, I f- a lot of notable English, uh, you know, academics at the time, prop- you know, they weren't making the trip all the way up to Edinburgh to go to his lectures. You know, um, yeah. And also, it might have also been because they had titles like The Theory of the Earth or An in, uh, Investigation of the Laws of uh, Observable in the Composition, Dissolution, and Restoration <laughs> of the Land Upon the Globe.
2: Yeah. Titles like that
1: make you not want to read the thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, according to one of his friends named John Playfair, uh, who... Uh, was a lot in a lot of these same circles in Edinburgh, but was actually on the faculty at the university. So this is a direct quote. Uh, he was in no haste to publish his theory, for he was one of those who are much more delighted with the contemplation of the truth than with the praise of having discovered it. Hmm. He just liked to sit and think and was, was not at all concerned about getting his word out there to people. He just liked to, to think. And to talk about it with his friends. <laughs>
0: uh, he seems like a real swell guy. Like, not the life of the party. Yeah. Just like, a guy you want hanging around. It, yeah, that's definitely the, the
1: vibe I kind of got from, from reading about him. Uh, many of his contributions went formally unpublished uh, and would come out l- very late in his life or even after his death. Uh, including by that guy, John Playfair. Uh, and later on, Charles Lyell in the 1830s, uh, whose work would then go on to greatly inspire Charles Darwin,
0: who was also... For that guy.
1: Most people don't realize, Dar- Darwin was also a pretty good geologist. Um, so Lyle, you know, helped inform a lot of Darwin's own thoughts about geology and stuff. And uh, Hutton served as a a big inspiration for a lot of lyle's stuff lyle was also uh scottish and so uh uh, another thing about hutton and he even seems like a little bit of a hippie based on this next part uh so he sort of liked to describe the earth as a whole as as a living system uh, comprised of both the biotic and abiotic processes of nature basically that everything is connected to everything else and that earth is essentially a, a singular living being. Hippie stuff. <laughs> um, this all gets very into philosophy, um, but there, there are some points to this um, in that what, what he was kind of getting at, I think, was that things like, you know, both the, the biotic and the abiotic forces affect things like the different levels of gases in the atmosphere The the level of salt in the oceans, etc. So it's it's a entirely interwoven and complex global ecosystem essentially, Um, and much later in the 1970s, this would uh, be coined the Gaia hypothesis and is uh, an interesting rabbit hole to go down if you uh, so choose. It is very hippy dippy, uh, but it's it's interesting. In that it has a lot of good points, but I'm like, do you have to phrase everything like that?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very metaphysical. Um, and so, one of the last things that I'm going to mention here is that even though I said at the beginning he didn't work all that much in paleontology, he did have a, a bit of thoughts inadvertently on evolution. Uh, he didn't really. Oh. Yeah. Um, he sort of stumbled into being really close to establishing natural selections or, or natural selection over 50 years before Darwin published his book. Uh, and in fact, Hutton died a couple years, uh, before Darwin was even born. Um, so he sort of argued that his theory of uniformitarianism that, you know, processes in the past are the same as processes today. Um, he argued that that also applied to living things. And here's a quote from one of his books. Uh, Quote, If an organized body is not in the situation and circumstances best adapted to its sustenance and propagation, then, in conceiving an indefinite variety among the individuals of that species, we must be assured that on one hand, those which depart from the best adapted constitution will be the most liable to perish, while on the other hand, Those organized bodies which most approach the best constitution for the present circumstances will be best adapted to continue in preserving themselves and multiplying the individuals of their race, race, meaning like species. Um, Basically the individuals who were better at finding food and having babies would live. Those that were worse would die. That's natural selection right there, more or less um and how he sort of came to this was through his experiments with the plants and stuff on his farm so all that farming he was doing just and fi- trying to figure out the best way to farm that's how he more or less stumbled into natural selection um he could uh for example distinguish between features of his animals that were inherited from their parents and features that were sort of acquired through an individual's life, um, especially in things like plants. So he could tell, oh, this plant was big because its parents were big, or this plant should have been big, but its soil was wrong, so it didn't get as big as it could have, which those distinctions, if you don't know that they are distinctions, they can be very hard to see. Um, And so uh, he unfortunately he sort of never took that next step to conclude that this would eventually lead to new species. Uh, and in fact, he actually d- outright dismissed that as fantasy, that new species would arise from these variations over time.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh,
1: yeah. And so Darwin never really mentions Hutton in any of his notes. And we have thousands of pages of Darwin's notes. Um, Never mentions Hutton at all. Um, but the people who often write about Darwin's life kind of find it hard to believe that he wasn't informed by Hutton a little bit because Darwin also spent lots of time at the university of Edinburgh. So the, the fact that he never heard any of his musings about this would probably surprise a lot of historians, even though he's never sort of credited with that. Um, and then lastly to sort of round us off, a very quick mention of uh, a concept called deism, uh, which is a very another very interesting you know Wikipedia rabbit hole to go down if you have time. Um, basically, it's sort of um, that instead of like revelations happening through like religious sense from like uh, religious texts or, or something like that or you know a, a deity speaking directly to people, Uh, Deism is sort of the concept that the best way to understand whatever supreme being you believe in is by uh, studying nature. So, for example, like Christian deism basically says the best way to learn about the Christian God is to learn about nature because God made the laws of physics. Nature obeys the laws of physics. And so the best way to, to learn directly from God is to learn from nature. Um, again, a little bit of hippie stuff, uh, but uh, an interesting rabbit hole to go down, nonetheless. And cool. yeah, that is that is James Hutton, uh, a, a relatively unproblematic guy who just wanted to live on his farm and look at cool rocks. Uh, if only um, we when, all. When did
0: this guy die? Could that be so is wholesome. Lucky. When did he die? Yeah, when did he die? Uh, Seventeen ninety-seven. Didn't even make it to the 1800s. No. Okay. How old was he when he died?
1: Uh, so he was born in 26. So like 71. Is
0: yeah, that okay. is that math? I mean, that's yeah, that's life. math. That's a good life for uh, you yeah, know, for someone at that time.
1: Well, I mean, he was a doctor and also wealthy. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if he, if he didn't have a decently long life, I would I would have been surprised.
0: Oh, well, that's a decent life for someone nowadays. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything we have to add on this one?
1: I don't think so. Um, I was I was pleasantly surprised the entire time I was doing the research for him. I was like, "There's gonna be something."
0: There's mm-hmm. as, as soon and as. And if there is, is something, let us know. Yeah. If you're out there, if you know, like, let us know, and we'll uh, we'll do a correction. But we're okay so far. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been episode 129 of "I Wish You Were Dead" podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, that was Gavin and Thea, and we'll see all of you in two weeks. Take care, everybody.
1: This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Finella Campanino. It was sound edited and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.